What a joy it is to be able to minister the Word of God to you again this morning. And we do so by turning our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 20 through verse 28. Before I open up the Word to you, I want to remind you of why we're here. You know, it can become a habit, a good habit, but we can forget why we come to this part of a worship service. I want to remind you that whenever we humble ourselves before the preaching of the Word of God, we are to do so with a passion to hear the Word and to apply it to our lives. No matter how difficult it might be to hear, And every text that I exposit for you on a Sunday morning points to the reality that that we are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners by nature. We're in desperate need of a Savior. But by His grace, He transforms us. And this is a message that is so offensive to the world because they don't see that they need saving from anything. They don't understand that all that they are and all that they do is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. They don't understand, as Jesus says, that that the wrath of God abides upon those who do not obey him. They don't understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They don't understand Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. Remember that passage? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And indeed, as we open up the word of God, we see that we're all accountable to a holy God. And scripture reveals how we are in desperate need of saving grace. It reveals that by nature... Man has no knowledge of God and no desire to know God, that he has an an innate antipathy, you might say, antipathy for the the things of God, to understand who he is. Romans 8 and verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. My, what a dilemma. Man loves darkness rather than light. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because he is spiritually appraised. In other words, he has no capacity in himself because of his fallen nature to fairly evaluate and form a a critical opinion of truth, even when it's presented to him with compelling evidence. He just can't see it. And worse yet, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever, 2 Corinthians 4.4. So, dear Christians, as we come here today, remember that the reason the world hates us 
It's because they hate God's word. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, he said to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And, of course, unbelievers derive this attitude from their father, the devil. And Jesus made that abundantly clear. You will recall in John 8, beginning in verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And we know that beginning in the garden and carried on through this very day, Satan distorted the word of God in an effort to deceive man by providing for man a distorted theology that appeals to the flesh. And it's for this reason we are warned to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and when it's not, we're to contend earnestly for the faith. That's what we do every morning. In Sunday school, this is what I'll be doing once again here today. And why is this important? Because if you don't contend earnestly for the faith, sinners are going to be deceived, saints are going to compromise, and churches are going to apostatize. That's why. And I must tell you, I've given my life to fighting for the truth here at Calvary Bible Church. I remember in 1994 when I was first called to this church. It was a little place called East Cheatham Baptist Chapel a Southern Baptist church plant, until I got involved. As I shepherded this little flock, only a few families in those days, it meant that we had to take some positions that other Southern Baptist churches hated. Not all, but many. They found it very offensive, and suddenly all of our funding dried up, was cut off. A piece of property that they had given to the church was taken away, and we've been held at arm's length for over 20 years by many. But in the providence of God and by his grace, the church has flourished, and we rejoice in that. And it's sad to see that so many denominations, and I don't mean to be picking on the Southern Baptists. I have dear friends in that in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's some wonderful, godly churches, but my, does it continue to to drift. It's for this very reason that many churches are leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. The the compromise and the apostasy is accelerating at such a rate that, that, that they just can no longer associate with it. This is what I saw 25 years ago. By the way, I would strongly urge each of you to listen to Pastor Jeff Noblitz's statement on why they are leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the pastor of a flagship Southern Baptist church in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. It's called Grace Life Church. And the same issues that 
led them to this position where the types of things that I was seeing 25 years ago, even though now they've gotten worse, there's new names, there's new political pressures in the mix, everything from the ecumenism and the charismatic excesses of of certain people like Beth Moore uh, to the embracing of, of even the word faith heretic Paula White, who is President Trump's spiritual advisor. It's frightening. Not to mention embracing Things like critical race theory and intersectionality and and the social justice gospel, homosexuality. And what's frightening is so many people, not just in that denomination, but in most denominations, see these things and don't find anything wrong with it. It's frightening. How could that happen? It's because they've been in churches where they've not been taught the word. And so they lack spiritual discernment. They, they have not been around those who are willing to contend earnestly for the faith and take stands. And so as we come to our study of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15, please understand my exposition to you this morning is a strategy of war against error. This is not just a little time to teach the Bible. I mean... The souls of men and women and boys and girls are at stake here. So every exposition is kind of like a, I don't know, an ICBM fired at the, uh, the, the approaching forces of liberalism that eviscerates the gospel, especially those that would deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. So this morning, prepare to be armed, prepare to be fortified, for battle this morning as together we put on the full armor of God, right? And why do we do that? So that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, right? That's why we're here. And also to be deeply encouraged in these days so filled with discouragement. I I hate to turn on the news these days, don't you? It's just just such a downer. So, by way of review, Paul has has just described the dire consequences of denying the resurrection in verses 12 through 19. Remember, they believed that Christ died and rose again, but eh, I'm not sure we can do that. Greek dualism had infiltrated the church, and, and you remember those things. So Paul has said, my goodness, if that's true, then Christ is still in the grave. Preaching the gospel is useless. Your faith is useless. The apostles and all gospel preachers are nothing more than liars. Worse yet, we are all still in our sins. And all believers who have died are forever lost. As Christians, we're the most pitiable people on the planet. How utterly depressing. How hopeless. How discouraging. I mean, why even live, right? Well, the answer is because of verse 20 and the rest where we're going to look at today, okay? So beginning in verse 20, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Amazing passage of scripture. I fear I'll not even come close to doing it justice this morning. What a dramatic shift. Paul absolutely obliterates the Corinthian error that believers are not going to be raised from the dead. Moreover, he demolishes the, the fortress of deception that, that incarcerates the damned by denying Christ's literal resurrection, not to mention believers. And so he makes this most glorious threefold announcement. And this is what we will look at this morning. First of all, Christ is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Secondly, the redeemed will be harvested at his coming. And then finally, Christ will restore all things and reign in Trinitarian glory. Sometimes I can come up with a three-word outline. I couldn't do it this time, forgive me, but hopefully we'll be able to flesh these out. And oh, child of God, this is the certain hope of the redeemed. And this is the certain horror of the damned. And it's for this reason we can sing with Charles Wesley as we did earlier, Rejoice, the Lord is King. I I love verse 4, Rejoice in glorious hope, for Christ the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. So let's look at what Paul says here, number one, regarding Christ being the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Verse 20, but now, oh, I've got to stop there. Those two words give such hope, don't they? But now, you know, hang on. I know you're about to go shoot yourself, but now, what a relief, what joy in those two words. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, his atoning work was sufficient to appease the wrath of God, proving by his resurrection that he will now return in Trinitarian glory, the glory that he had with the Father. Christ has been raised the fruits of those who are asleep. Now, asleep is referring to the righteous dead, whose spirits are with the Lord, but whose bodies are decomposing in the grave. They're awaiting recomposition and a glorious reuniting with the soul. By the way, it was for this reason that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 2, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. We all have those days, don't we? where we just kind of want to say, oh, Lord, I just wish you'd take me home. I just wish you'd take me home. Paul went through that. We all do. I'm reminded of what he said in Philippians 1, verse 21. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So we press on, don't we? And we rejoice in that. So Paul is saying essentially this, you foolish Corinthians who have been deceived into believing that there is no resurrection from the dead for believers. Christ has been risen, Christ has been raised from the dead, which you believe, he said that back back in verses 1 and 2, but this means that he is also the first fruits of a resurrection harvest that will include all who are united to him by grace through saving faith. It's very important that we understand this figure of the first fruits. It's a powerful image. By the way, this harkens back to Leviticus 23, especially in verse 9 and following, where the Lord spoke to Moses concerning the first fruits of their barley harvest. And that occurred in March and April. Barley is similar to, to wheat. And it was a great festival uh, that was celebrated on the day after the Sabbath of unleavened bread, in that week, and this involved presenting to the Lord a sheaf of barley. They would give it to the priest, and he would wave it before the Lord on their behalf. And then 50 days later, they would offer a new grain offering. By the way, they had other things that went along with this, but they they would then offer a new grain offering to the Lord along with other sacrifices, and this was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. Also, it was called Pentecost. But the initial feast of fruit, of first fruits symbolized the consecration of the whole of the harvest to God, and it was a pledge of a harvest to come. And it pointed to the future resurrection that was fulfilled in Christ. Now, this is Paul's point. The first sheaf of barley was a representative sample of a harvest. Now, catch this that already existed. You see that? It was the first installment of a fully ripened crop in the field awaiting harvest. So Paul's point here is how on earth can you believe that Christ is the first fruit if he were the only fruit? I mean, that's absurd. Do you really think that he was the only sheaf of barley? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So his point is, obviously, the resurrection is certain. The first sheaf cannot be harvested, and it cannot be offered unless the rest of the harvest is also ripe and ready to be harvested. That's the point. So since Christ has been raised, and since you belong to him, you are all also going to be raised from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. That includes each one of you. By the way, you see similar imagery of first fruits, like in Romans 8.23, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In other words, the, the, the first the fruits, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in us now uh, gives us hope that we will one day fully be manifested like Christ and so forth. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought 
us forth by the word of truth so that we so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures in other words as believers we are the first evidence of god's new creation that will one day come and also what we enjoy in christ is is just a sample of what we're ultimately going to enjoy in heaven and so forth by the way i i wanted to point this out the Feast of First Fruits, followed by the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost, has nothing to do with the lies of the word, faith, prosperity, gospel heretics. It has nothing to do with personal wealth. It does not speak of a seed of financial sacrifice that we give to God as we await a greater harvest. That's what they teach For example, if you go on Paula White's website video, you will read and hear this. You can honor God on this day of Pentecost, Sunday, June 12th. She goes on to say, it is harvest time and your divine appointment is now. You have an appointment with God to release a harvest of his blessing into your life on Sunday, June 12th, the day of Pentecost. She goes on to say what Pentecost really is on the divine calendar is 50 days after Passover, where there is a gathering, is the harvest of wheat. We know the process of wheat, that it comes forth and it's usable as fine flour. So it really is the place where we're sending and signifying a signal for, for the harvest, that the seed of sacrifice that we are going to give to you, God, is the recognition that harvest is ready to come to our life. She goes on to say, God's simply saying, honor me. And as you do, you're not giving to get something, but as you do, you cannot help but for God's pattern and God's principles and God's promises to be released in your life. Will you press that donation button right now and say, Pastor Paula, I don't want to miss an opportunity. Folks, that is blasphemy. I mean, that is nothing more than wicked, self-serving distortion of God's word to fill the coffers of charlatans. That's all that is. All those great Old Testament festivals pointed to Christ, not to us and our own wealth. It's just ridiculous. Christ is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Well, back to the text. Sorry for that little aside, but I want to make sure I got that in there because so many people are confused about that. Verse 21, Paul goes on, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, folks, these two verses explain the quandary of the human condition that philosophers and psychologists and sociologists have tried to explain for millennia. Why is it that we have so much greed and hatred and immorality and and a lust for power? And why are people so prone to jealousy and strife and violence and so forth? Despite all of the scientific and, and technological developments of our modern contemporary age, and we see in our culture that there's no explanation for this human predicament of evil that we see all around us. Well, folks, here's the explanation. And I might add, here's the solution. Man is under the curse of God because of Adam's sin. 
Boy, that would go over like a lead balloon at Vanderbilt, wouldn't it? But that's what God has said. Romans 5, verse 12, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Let me give you just a a little theology for a moment, if you can bear with me. What the apostle is saying here and what we read in Scripture is that in some inscrutable sense, all men existed in Adam. And when Adam sinned, all men sinned in him. And therefore, guilt was assigned to all men. This is sometimes called Augustinianism. Theologians will, it's it's part of Calvinism and so forth. It's just biblical theology. So men are not just considered guilty because of Adam's sin, but they are pronounced guilty. Said a little bit differently, all men, save the virgin-born Jesus Christ, actually took part in Adam's sin. And thus, as a result of his own sin in Adam, not the sin of another, every human being stands condemned and possessed of a fallen nature, which will certainly work itself out in sin. Said real simply, because of Adam, man sins because he is a sinner. He is, Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, dead in his trespasses and sins. By the way... This position concerning the imputation of Adam's sin is in stark contrast to the teachings of Arminianism. Um, Churches, denominations like the United Methodists or Arminians, uh, Nazarenes, Free Will Baptists, uh, many Southern Baptists now, Pentecostals, Wesleyan churches, American Baptists, and so forth. Arminianism teaches that man, to to say it real simply, man is not dead. He's just sick. And they deny that inherited moral evil involves guilt-worthiness. They believe that the effect of Adam's sin upon the race is just physical death and moral inability. That sin does not result in in spiritual death and personal guilt or any kind of condemnation. They believe that the natural man has a tendency to sin, but, but, but he is not sinful. In other words, he's not guilty before a holy God until he actually, personally, consciously commits sin. That is, a man is a sinner only if and when he actually sins. And they believe that God has, has given each man a ministry of the Spirit and The Spirit then draws him to the truth, and man has within himself the capacity to respond rightly if he chooses to do so, if he chooses to make a decision for Jesus and so forth. So a man is saved by cooperating with the work of God through the Spirit, by lending his own strength to that of the Spirit and thus giving himself to God. Now, I believe that is is wrong biblically. Um, That's not an accurate position. If you read scripture, I believe it's rather clear that man is totally depraved and offensive to the holiness of God, that all that he is and all that he does is is, is entirely unable to please God, that he stands condemned, that he is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, 
by nature the child of wrath. Man is spiritually dead. He is a corpse. He can do nothing. Therefore, man must be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's the glorious doctrine of regeneration. Only then is he able to trust in the finished work of Christ. Only then can he be reconciled and be made one with God and thus be accepted as righteous in the sight of a holy God. Sin is man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. And then you add to this Satan's deceptive schemes that are so appealing to man's fallen flesh, and you have the recipe for every imaginable form of wickedness. Now back to our text, verse 21. For since by a man, referring to Adam, came death, by a man, referring to Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. (laughs) This is such a staggering and exciting passage. I mean, folks, think about this. Because Christ conquered death, he alone can speak to a spiritual cadaver through his word by the power of his spirit and raise that corpse from spiritual death to spiritual life. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. By the way, the word all here refers to those who become the supernatural descendants of Christ, the elect of his grace. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, folks, it is only in the resurrection that we are able to stand one day in the presence of God, blameless with great joy, like Adam did before the fall. Romans 5, 19, Paul says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. I mean, think about it. Adam's sin brought spiritual death, causing man to fall victim to physical death. But Christ has brought spiritual life. He he has conquered spiritual and physical death, resulting in the bodily resurrection of all those who are united to him. It's an amazing thing. Through Christ, paradise lost becomes paradise gained. Through the resurrection, Christ becomes the the life-giving spirit. He is the last Adam who brings into existence a, a new order of power and life and indescribable glory that we will all enjoy one day when we receive those resurrected bodies. And even prior to that, when our soul is with him. But this is the hope of the redeemed. So indeed, Christ, number one, is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Then he goes on, number two, and speaks of the redeemed that will be harvested at his coming. Verse 23, but each in his own order, he says. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, 
the resurrection occurs in stages as we look at Scripture. And by the way, many of uh, uh, many things in God's program occurs in stages. His covenants, his kingdom, uh, salvation, the day of the Lord, judgment, and so forth. Now, the Bible speaks of the resurrection of the redeemed as, quote, the first resurrection, Revelation 20 and verse 5. Also, the resurrection of life in John 5, 29. Eternal life, Romans 2, 7, or everlasting life in Daniel 12 and verse 2. However, this first resurrection, as I understand it biblically, occurs in three phases. Christ, the first fruits, then the church saints, and then the Old Testament and tribulation saints. Phase one is Christ, the first fruits. That happened in A.D. 30. That's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And then the second phase, those who are Christ at his coming. We see this here in this text, as well as verses 50 through 58. I believe this will include the resurrected church saints, both dead and alive at the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. That's where the dead in Christ, you will recall, they will rise first, and then the living saints will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And then phase three will include the Old Testament saints. We see glimpses of this in Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14, Daniel 12, 2, as well as the saints that are martyred during the time of the tribulation, according to Revelation 20 and verse 4. They, they will be resurrected when Jesus returns to the earth to establish his glorious kingdom. You will recall, by the way, in Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11, how the martyred saints uh, uh, who gave their lives for Christ during the time of the tribulation, they call out for the avenging of their blood. But they are told to wait a little while. And then in Revelation 20 and verse 4, their prayers are answered. Here's what we read. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I know some are going to ask, and rightfully so, what about the resurrection of the unredeemed of all time. After all, in Acts 24, verse 15, Paul, remember, he stood before Felix and, and declared that there is a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, and that this was laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So what about them? Well, the next part of Revelation 20, beginning at verse 5, answers that. There we read, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. John speaks of this in John 5.29. This is called the resurrection of judgment. And this will occur at the end of Christ's millennial reign. This will be the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20.11 through 15. And this will be uh, the judgment that will take place in the, the indescribable void between the end of the present universe and the creation of the new heavens, the new earth. It's a, it's a frightening thing. I, I hate to even dwell upon it. But all the places that have held the bodies of the unrighteous dead will yield up those bodies, bodies that will then be suited for the eternal torment of hell. 
and they will be raised to eternal death. This is called the second death, Revelation 20 and verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. My friend, if you are here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I shudder to say this, but what I've just described will be your fate. Unless you humble yourself before Christ. But all for the redeemed. What astounding truth. The the dead in Christ and and those who are alive at his coming will will be glorified. And and that glorification is going to take place in, in the twinkling of an eye at his return. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15... We're going to get to this later on, not today, but beginning in verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So after the resurrection harvest at his coming, Paul says in verse 24, then comes the end. Then comes the end. Now bear in mind Paul has spoken first of Christ being the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. Secondly, the redeemed are going to be harvested at his coming. And now the apostle makes this third glorious announcement that Christ will restore all things and reign in Trinitarian glory. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. By the way, that phrase, under his feet, harkens back to an ancient custom of kings and emperors. They always made sure that their throne was above everyone that would come before them, so that when they bowed down, all they could see were their feet. And so this speaks of the sovereign glory of the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I... I don't know if this is part of my flesh or what, but I I just long to see some people get their comeuppance, don't you? I mean, all of the people who have opposed Christ down through the year, I'd love to see them come to faith in Christ. But those who don't, I mean, one day they're going to be placed under his feet. We see these people on the news every day. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that pretty well covers it, right? And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 26 and following, he says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Here Paul is going back to Psalm 8 and verse 6. There we read, You make him, referring to man, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. 
I mean, think about this. As his image bearers, we are to exercise dominion over God's creation. We read that beginning back in that command back in Genesis 1, 26, I think, through 28. But because of the fall, because of sin, we are incapable of properly fulfilling God's commission to be his administrators. As the progeny of Adam, with all of our sin... We're supposed to be God's vice regent over the earth, but because we are in Adam, because we are like him, we have all failed miserably. But in Christ, because of his redemptive work, we will one day be able to fulfill what he wants us to fulfill. Christ is the supreme representative of mankind, and we're united to him now. And he alone is the one that can fulfill man's original purpose. Verse 27b goes on, and when he says all things are put in subjection, he adds, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That is, God the Father is the exception who will not be subject to Christ. They will rule equally. Then he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I might add that this is one of, frankly, many reasons why I believe that God's kingdom program requires a future earthly reign of the last Adam, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon this earth, so that he can succeed and we with him where the first Adam failed. Again, if you go back to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, the first Adam was was given the task to have dominion and to subdue as God's representative in ruling over his creation, but he failed miserably. So the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who belong to him must succeed where he failed. And together with the Messiah, we must reign from and over an earthly realm where Adam failed. This is why Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then when that earthly reign is successful, When that's completed, the mediatorial kingdom of the Messiah will be handed over to God the Father. And this means Christ's earthly kingdom, where he rules and where where we reign with him, will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. And it's amazing to think that Jesus the Messiah, as it says here, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then he hands over the kingdom to his father. It'll be the eternal kingdom at that point, which involves the direct reign of both the father and the son. As we close this morning, (laughs) I have to say, as I thought this through, Paul's argument is a bit humorous here. I mean, in fact, what he's saying is, you Corinthians that believe Christ was raised from the dead, but that you're not going to be raised, you're you're believing these morons that are teaching you this? I mean, think about it. Without a resurrection, there would be no last Adam to rule or to reign. Moreover, there would be no subjects in God's eternal kingdom. Right? Right? 
It's almost like he's saying, so what you bozos are thinking is just absurd. By the way, I, I hope that someday I'll be able to talk, and I'm, I think we will, be able to talk with some of those Corinthian believers and say, my, Paul really gave it to you, didn't he? And, and I would have probably been right there with you and believed the Greek duelist, but my, what did you think? It's like, oh my, I mean, by the time he got finished with us, I mean, this is, this is so compelling, it's overwhelming. In closing, I, I love what John MacArthur said, quote, When Christ took the assignment of salvation from his father, Christ came to earth as a baby and lived and grew up as a man from among men. He taught, preached, healed, and did miraculous works. He died, was buried, and was raised and ascended to his father, where he now intercedes for those who are his. When he returns, he will fight, conquer, rule, judge, and then, as his last work on the father's behalf, forever subdue and finally judge all the enemies of God, recreate the earth and heavens, and finally deliver the kingdom to the God and Father. And to think, dear folks, that solely by his grace alone, all the redeemed down through redemptive history will be the glorified subjects of that kingdom. And that's going to include us. Can you think of anything more humbling? Can you think of anything more exhilarating? I mean, when I contemplate these things, my head begins to explode, right? But folks, this is the hope that we have in Christ. And if you don't know him, I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to believe in him, to repent to be saved this day before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that are so exhilarating to our soul. I pray that because of them, we will have a renewed passion for the gospel, that we would go forth and proclaim the glorious news of sins forgiven that many will be saved. So I commit your word preached once again to you for your sake. May it bear much fruit to the praise of your glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church, Or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.